You notice God says, seek my face, not seek my blessings or seek things from me. Seek my face. That means seeking a personal relationship, seeking an intimate fellowship and communion with God the Father. Welcome to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host. You know, there's so much going on in our world today that brings confusion and discouragement. If we're not careful, these things can paralyze us as we become fixated on them and not Jesus. It's been my observation over the past few years from personal conversations with different believers that many are defeated and act as if there's no hope. Well, this ought not to be the case for the follower of Christ. Ron Lowry, who has been a longtime friend of His Hill and is one of our guest lecturers, will address this issue and how to deal with it as he leads us in a devotion from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. So here's Ron. Hello, I'd like to bring your attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And it states, And my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Often we hear this verse quoted, and especially in days like we're living in today, with all the political turmoil, the economic turmoil, and all the other things that are going on, not only in our own individual country, but around the entire globe. And often it seems that we hear this verse quoted, that if somehow a nation will repent and come back to God, that they will be restored to some type of long-lost utopia or some such thing. But let's see what's really being said here, for we all know that we need God's intervention. We, we need the move of God in, in the, our country, in our world. When we look at this verse, we need to remember the context of it. First of all, um, this was a covenant promise that God made with the children of Israel in the land of Israel, in the promised land. This was a, a theocracy between God overseeing and ruling Israel, and he had promised them in this covenant that, that he had made with them the promise of the land. And that's why the land is so important to Israel. It is part of their covenant with God. Now, we as believers today cannot take this verse and make it 100% apply to us wherever we are. We're not in the covenant with God as Israel was, but we are in a new covenant. We're told very clearly by Jesus that the blood is the blood of a new covenant. We are his people. And so while, yes, we need to see repentance, and yes, we need to see change, and we need to see a move of God— I don't think we can say that if we do repent and we see a move back towards God, that all of a sudden we, our countries, our lands won't have any more famines or droughts or pestilences or problems. However, I do believe that we can take some wonderful principles out of this verse that do apply to us. God says in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, 
so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So I think that we have Second Chronicles 7.14 written for our instruction, and that there are in, indeed some tremendous principles that we can gain from and pull from in this. Now, I want us to look at this verse, but to understand it and to be able to truly apply the principles to our lives and to where we are today, we need to understand the context of what was happening. This tremendous, beautiful, magnificent temple has finally been completed. God had used Solomon in this process, and this temple was completed. It was magnificent. It was majestic. It was a, a beautiful splendor to see. Uh, I even read in one place that some estimate in today's money, in today's U.S. dollars, it could have cost close to $2 trillion. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it still shows the majestic beauty and the splendor or, of the temple. They've got the temple completed, which was a promise from God and a promise made to Solomon. Now it's complete. They're having this tremendous worship service, and there's all this worship going on that you should read in 1 Kings, the sacrifices that were made, the thousands and thousands and ten thousands of animals, such that they cannot be really numbered. So there's all of this worship, there's all of this focus on the temple of God, which meant the presence of God. Solomon prays this wonderful prayer of dedication to the temple, and God answers majestically. In chapter 7, God's initial response is to send fire from heaven, consuming the sacrifice. His glory fills the temple. His glory fills the temple such it's so magnificent, so powerful that the priests can't even go in and minister. And there's more worship and more sacrificing. It's just amazing. And, and you think of all of this worship, all of this focus on the glory and majesty of God, you see God moving and manifesting himself in a very powerful way and even more worship and a greater prayer going on. All this concentration on God and God's response is to send the fire, fill the place with his glory, and then his statement in Second Chronicles 7 verse 13 is basically, now when you sin... When I start sending my judgment, when you see my wrath being poured out through pestilences and droughts and problems in your land, then verse 15, I mean, excuse me, 14, these are my conditions, my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So what are the principles we take from this? First of all is God knows our propensity to sin. God understands our propensity to sin. Even in the middle of, of worship, even in the middle of walking with God, we can step into sin pretty quickly. I mean, one Old Testament character for sure is David himself, Solomon's father. 
remember, David's called the friend of God. He's, he's called a man after God's own heart. He's a man God has used to write numerous psalms that we study and preach and memorize and sing. Yet we know the history of David. We know how he fell into deep, deep sin with adultery with Bathsheba and then working to have her husband murdered so that he could take her into himself. And we know that God brought David to repentance and restored him. There are other Old Testament examples, but there's a New Testament example too, I believe, that applies here that we have the Apostle Peter. Peter spent, you know, three and a half years with Jesus being taught and mentored and discipled. Then the Lord God calls him as his disciple, I mean, as his apostle, and he's used of God. He preaches on the day of Pentecost. He writes First uh, and Second Peter in our Bibles. But remember, Paul had to confront him and rebuke him at one time because Peter was acting wrongly. So we have a propensity to sin. It's not that, okay, I have a propensity to sin, so therefore I can just sin. It's okay. No, it's not okay. But God understands that we are weak and in deep need of Him. And He says, when you sin, when you fall, if my people will humble themselves. That word humble is the Old Testament word for subdue. It means bending the knee in deference to another, submitting yourself. So God is calling for our utter submission to Him, our utter abandoning of ourselves to Him alone. When we sin, when we understand that we have stepped out of fellowship with the Lord our God, and if we'll humble ourselves, that means acknowledge that we've made a mistake, acknowledge that we have sinned, acknowledge that we have sinned against God. We humble ourselves. We come to the place, even as Jesus said in Matthew 5, when he spoke about those who are poor in spirit, that word poor means beggar, poverty-stricken. And so not only do we come to Christ initially in salvation by humbling ourselves, by acknowledging we don't have what it takes, we have nothing to offer God, even after we have become a Christian, we are to continuously humble ourselves, come before Him realizing, I, I can't live the Christian life on my own. In and of myself, I walk in the flesh, and the flesh is always against the things of God. The flesh is always in sin. So I humble myself. I come and agree that God is right and I am wrong. I acknowledge my sin before Him and my need for Him, my need for His grace, my need for His mercy, my need for His life. And so I submit and I return to Him instantly in humility. And he says, if we will humble ourselves and pray, humble ourselves and pray. Humility comes before prayer. This humility, again, is acknowledging I do not have what it takes. I am wrong, and I am in need of God. I am in need of His grace, His mercy. I'm in need of the righteousness of Christ. Humility comes before prayer and leads us into prayer because humility shows me my lack 
my need for God, and as I acknowledge that, then I call out to God in prayer. And prayer, at its basic level, I think, is an invitation to God. It's an invitation asking God to take over. Prayer is entrusting our life, our situation, our sin to Him to receive His forgiveness, to receive His strength, to receive His mercy and grace. (laughs) And then it is to receive Him in His power, in His wisdom, to take over my need, my situation, my life. It's asking Him to employ His power, His wisdom, His person into my life and into my situation. George Mueller stated, Our very weakness gives opportunity for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to be manifested. So in my humility, I see my emptiness, my worthlessness. I call out to the Father. I invite Him in. I invite Christ to be my all. In my weakness, I seek His strength. And so I humble myself and I pray. As I'm praying, as I'm seeking His power, His strength, as I begin to understand and see Him, then I seek Him for who He is. You notice God says, seek my face, not seek my blessings or seek things from me. Seek my face. That means seeking a personal relationship, seeking an intimate fellowship and communion with God the Father. So if I truly walk in humility... I deny myself, I see my emptiness, I see that I have nothing to offer to God, that leads me to pray, that leads me to call out to God. As I am calling out to God and God answers, I increasingly see His strength, His majesty, His holiness, His righteousness, and it leads me to seek Him, to seek His person, to seek His righteousness, to seek His holiness, to seek fellowship with Him. And that, in turn, will definitely lead to any repentance that needs to take place in my life and turn from their wicked ways. A true, genuine repentance, not simply a confession to get my sins forgiven, but turning to Him for the strength to walk away from myself, walk away from my flesh, walk away from the sin into His holiness. A great Old Testament example of that would be like Isaiah. Isaiah, the great prophet of God, he's called of God. He's been assigned to be God's prophet. He's being used of God to preach God's word and God's judgment on the surrounding nations and cities. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, he has allowed that awesome grand vision into heaven to where he sees into the very throne room of God himself. John tells us he sees Jesus seated on the throne. And Isaiah sees that magnificent grace and majesty and holiness. He sees the seraphim and their activity before holy God. He hears the cry, the antiphonal singing of the angels as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And right in the middle of all of this worship, right in the middle of this vision of seeing the majesty and glory of God, Isaiah sees himself 
and he realizes he's a sinner. He realizes that he's in a dangerous place because he has sin in his life. And just as he has cried out judgment, eight woes prior to this in Isaiah 6, he pronounces a woe upon himself. He cries out, woe is me. I am to be judged. I am to be come against because of the sin in my life. So he humbles himself. He calls out to God, and he's forgiven. He's restored. He repents. And God uses him, continues to use him. More and more examples we can find in the Bible of this very same thing, that we must humble ourselves. And as believers, we understand and we should understand that this humility, this coming humbly to the Lord, is not just that initial coming for salvation. Yes, it's necessary that we see we have nothing to offer in the matter of salvation. There is absolutely no way we can extricate ourselves from sin and make ourselves holy. So in humbleness, we come as in poverty of spirit. We come in poor spirits, beggarly, having nothing to offer, and we call out to the Lord Jesus for salvation, and we're saved. But that same humility must be at the forefront of our thinking every moment of every day for us to live the Christian life. We must consistently see, as Jesus said, that we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. We are to consistently, moment by moment, day by day, deny ourselves. I don't have what it takes to live the Christian life. I don't have what it takes to be the person, to be the minister that the Lord God has called me to be. I don't have that holiness in and of myself. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. And in that humility, it really impresses upon my heart, impresses upon my spirit, my absolute need in the moment to call out to Jesus, asking him to take over asking him to pour in his strength, his righteousness, his wisdom, his hope, his peace, his joy, all that he is. And if I will increasingly do that, the more I walk in the Spirit, relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the more I will seek him for who he is. I will seek his face. I will have a desperate, insatiable thirst to just commune with him to fellowship with the Lord Jesus, to experience the reality of His presence. As I'm in His presence, as I am walking with Him, as I'm seeking Him, He will show me the sin that's in my life. He will show me what is sin, so that when I am tempted in His strength, I can stand against it and resist it. And then I will walk in His ways. And then the Lord says, he promises that here that he will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. For the believer, that means God will hear and he will forgive. When we sin, he's promised us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sin, he is faithful to hear us and forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he will hear. The word confess simply means to agree with God. 
I agree with him, this is sin, and I have indeed sinned against you. He will forgive. He will restore me. He will heal the fellowship I have with him. Now, especially in a day and a time that we're living in now, and here in the United States, we're in an election year, I want to remind us that, yes, we should vote. Any country we live in, if we have the freedom and the privilege to vote, I believe before God we should prayerfully vote and vote wisely under the leadership of God. But I want us to understand that as believers, this is not our home, and politicians are not our hope. Our hope is not in the election. Our hope isn't in that we get better people elected. Our hope isn't in getting a better economy. Our hope isn't in things turning around and going back to the good old days. We must never forget that our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We don't belong here. We're not going to stay here. One day soon, we're going to be taken off this planet into glory, where we're truly citizens of the kingdom of God. That should be our focus. That should be our hope. And we should consistently and constantly be seeking the Lord Jesus Christ to be our everything and to fill us with His sustenance, to fill us with His life, to live a holy, righteous life here during these days and in the days to come, all the time realizing that our purpose here is to worship Him, to glorify Him, and exalt Him. And I believe that's the principles we pull out of Second Chronicles 7.14 for the believer today, that we are to humble ourselves, subdue ourselves, submit ourselves to Christ, invite Him, constantly inviting Him through prayer to take over, to seek His face alone, to seek His things, His purposes, His will. Be quick to confess our sin and repent, and allow Him to fill us with His powerful Holy Spirit that we may manifest Him in these days, that we may exalt Him and glorify Him and therefore live in Christ our life with our eyes fixed on Jesus in the coming kingdom. Father, I pray that You'd speak through these words. I pray that we'd understand that we must consistently turn our attention to you and our hope at all times must be in Christ and Christ alone. Our desire to live must always be to desire to live Christ. Our gain to always be desiring to gain Christ, to grow in grace and knowledge, to go deeper in you, that you may be more manifest in us and through us. And Lord Jesus, to you be all the glory. In your wonderful name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the His Hill podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed tuning in to hear from one of our beloved guest speakers, Ron Lowry, and that you were encouraged by his devotional. We are filling up here at the Hill for the 2024-2025 school year. If you or someone you know is interested in applying, please visit our website at hishill.org for more information or to apply. We would love to have you here in the fall. 
Once again, you've been listening to the His Hill podcast featuring our host, Kelly Doherty, along with Ron Lowry. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and He is worth waiting for and waiting on. I'm Lizzie, and we'll see you next week.